All right, well, grab your Bibles. We hope you have them to Daniel chapter 9 as we get into one of the most fascinating chapters in all of the book of Daniel. And that's saying something, right? Fascinating book to begin with. But Daniel chapter 9 is really the cornerstone prophetic calendar of the entire Bible. And that's a big statement if you think about it. The last seven verses have been studied by scholars for literally 2,000 years. And it's amazing what they offer. But in looking at these chapters, I'm sorry, these verses, the first 19 verses are often overlooked. But truly, the succession of the last seven are predicated upon the prayer in which Daniel offers unto God. It's a fascinating prayer. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. The prayer of Daniel. A prayer for God's plan. So let us take our Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 9, if you will. If you've hit Revelation, you've gone too far, back up. And we begin in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the book the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem." The children of Israel find themselves in Babylonian captivity due to their sin. They had rebelled against God in such a dynamic way that God finally brought judgment, more chastisement against them to correct them in their disobedience. He gave them warning after warning. Prophet after prophet was sent to them to encourage them to repent and to turn back to the Lord. But they chose not to willfully, stubbornly disobeying God and continuously rebelling against His desire for them. He tried to persuade them through grace. He uh, tried to encourage them to come back. He did everything He could, but they were unwilling to repent. As a result, the Babylonians were brought against Israel in 537 B.C. And as a result, they were brought into captivity. I'm sorry, 605 B.C. And then they were brought into Babylonian captivity. And Daniel was one of the first captives brought in at the age of 15. And as a result, they were now subjected to the Babylonians, who then went on to proceed to destroy the entire city of Jerusalem and leave it in ruins. But something happened. Daniel began to observe and to see that the events and the uh, circumstances around him were unfolding just as the Bible said that they were, or would, excuse me. And as a result, he began to see that and understand that once the Medes and the Persian Empire succeeded that of the Babylonians, that it was going to be under King Cyrus that they were going to be released and let go and sent back to their land. In Isaiah 45, 1, Cyrus is named by name 
to be the one that will liberate them. And Jeremiah tells Daniel very specifically that it will be a 70-year period of time that they will be in this Babylonian captivity. So Daniel just saw the signs of the times. He said, the Medes and the Persians are now in control, so our captivity must be coming to an end. And as Jeremiah had written, this captivity would only last 70 years. For example, in Jeremiah 25, 11, should be on the screen behind me. And this whole land shall be desolate and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And also, if you turn with me in your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 29, look with me. Beginning in verse 10. These were the passages that Daniel was familiar with, realizing that the time of their captivity was coming to an end. In Jeremiah 29.10, starting there, we'll read to 14. And thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you, cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I ha think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil, and to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from the, all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. The promises of God made to his people. The covenant that God established with the nation of Israel is found in the Mosaic Covenant. The terms of that covenant are outlined for us in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and 29. God says, if you obey me, you shall be blessed in this way. Then he says, if you disobey me, you shall be cursed in this way. And part of that cursing was to be scattered and taken out of the land in which he had promised to give them. They were scattered due to the fact that they did not allow the land to rest according to the prescribed manner in which God had stated it should be allowed to rest. Every seven years, the land should be allowed to rest. In the 50th year, there should be a double sabbatical where two years are observed. And as a result, the nation of Israel completely disregarded that direction. And so God literally took them out of the land for the number of years that they did not allow the land to rest to rejuvenate itself, to allow them to further prosper in their agricultural endeavors. But now, because of Jeremiah and the Word of God, which it's interesting that Daniel already recognizes the writing of the prophet Jeremiah as the Word of God, it's something to notice, he sees that the captivity there in Babylon is coming to an end knowing that God made them a promise here in these verses in Jeremiah, 
that he has a future plan for them. Now, there's been much debate in the Christian church if it is appropriate for a Christian to uh, apply or to uh, appropriate this promise. Well, technically, it is written to the nation of Israel, clearly. But that doesn't negate the fact that God has a plan and a purpose for each and every one of us that the New Testament clearly outlines for us. So the principle is true, but this particular promise is made directly to the nation of Israel. Now, we have been grafted into the vine, according to Paul in Romans. We haven't replaced Israel. Israel is still the nation in whom God gathered and chose, and he still will deal with uh, before his second coming. But we have been grafted in, and as God saved us, according to the book of Ephesians, he did so that we would fulfill the, the, the plans and the purposes that he has for us in Ephesians 2.10, saying that we are his workmanship before the foundation of the world. He planned these things for us. So I do believe God has a plan for each and every one of us, a personal will for each and every one of us that we as individuals should seek to fulfill. I read recently that one author stated that, is there truly any other greater endeavor here on this earth than to fulfill the will of God? Interesting question, and it should be thought about. Often we apply ourselves to things that really, in the grand scheme of things, don't matter, do they? And once we enter into eternity, we'll forget all about those things that so often distracted us and kept us from fulfilling those things that God would have us to fulfill. Now, finding the, God, the will of God has often been a question that many Christians have asked. How do I go about doing so? Many believe that finding the will of God is like Indiana Jones trying to find the lost ark. You have to run through a cave. You're, you're covered with tarantulas and you have to run from a large stone that's about to crush you. Well, in my experience, after 30 years of walking with the Lord, I've discovered that it's not something that so much has to, we have to find, it's more of us letting it find us. The will of God is there and is accessible. We need to do what Paul ha has instructed us to do in Romans 12, 1 and 2, lay ourselves down as living sacrifices before the Lord, praying the, that prayer that Jesus said, not my will be done, but your will be done, Lord. Preparing ourselves to allow the Spirit to lead us into the will that God has for us. But Daniel saw it's coming to an end. God has a plan. He was going to draw His people back to Him, and He would lead them to repent. What is interesting to me is that Daniel didn't wait for someone else among the Jewish people to repent. After reading these passages, memorizing them most likely, some scholars bring out the fact that for Daniel to have a copy of Jeremiah with him in Babylon was highly unlikely. He memorized it. What's even more interesting is that if he truly was brought into captivity at 15, he would have had to memorize it before he was 15. When we do memory verses in our children's ministry or in the youth group, the favorite one is always, Jesus wept. Two words. And do, do I get a toy now? What's, what's your memory verse? Jesus wept. That was your memory verse last week. I know, but it was difficult. In fact, we had two young ladies in the youth group on Friday 
who had memorized the book of James. Pretty, pretty impressive. But Daniel had these passages available to him in his mind. Highly doubt that he had it in writing. I think that would have been frowned upon in the Babylonian captivity. But knew it was coming to an end and knew that the release of the Israeli people, the Jewish people, would be preceded by their repentance. So as you turn back to Daniel chapter 9, if you will, in verse 3, we find that Daniel prepares himself for this moment. Then I set my face towards the Lord God to make requests by prayer, supplication, with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Daniel prepared himself to go before the Lord. He knew that this moment was significant. And so he prepared himself. When they state sackcloth and ashes, they're talking about a position before God of repentance. He is convicted. And he is now pleading with God for his forgiveness. And so as he prepares himself in such a dynamic way, notice with me, if you will, verse 4. He begins to worship the Lord. And I prayed to the Lord, my God, and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy uh, with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, then keep my commandments. Chief of those commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the key of it all. That love that we have for one another, for our neighbor, is predicated on the fact of our realization of the love that God has had for us and demonstrated to us through the giving of His Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whomsoever shall believe in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That love that God showed us should motivate us to love one another. To even love those who are unlovable. To love our enemy. It moves us in such a dynamic way. If God can love me, one distant, a sinner from Him, then who am I not to love others? That's what Jesus was saying. And here we find that Daniel begins to worship God, to put everything into perspective. Because what he is going to say next is not going to make a case before God to argue the merits of the Jewish people. Oh God, we've learned our lesson. We're all better now, God. Look at how good we are. We've completed all the chores on our chore chart for the last three weeks. Oh Lord, please bless us. Rescue us, save us. No, he appeals to the character of God. You're a merciful God. You're a covenant-keeping God. When, you are, when we are faithless, you are faithful in all things. And Daniel absolutely appeals to God, not on the basis of their works or merits, but on the basis of the character of God and the promises of God towards his people. 
Now, this absolutely should begin to shape our prayer life. When we pray, how often do we neglect preparing ourselves for a time of prayer? Maybe just studying ourselves in the sense of getting alone to a quiet place. Just preparing our hearts by reading God's Word. Realizing and remembering who we are and that the grace that God showed us to save us. But often now I have learned that the best way to begin praying is to put everything back into true perspective, starting with, who is my God? And you know, I can be angst before I begin to pray over some circumstance that I am faced with. But then I bring God into the equation and all of a sudden, often, that angst begins to dissipate. Because I see the problem now through the lens of God rather than the lens of me. And I realize that what I am incapable of doing, God is perfectly capable in doing. And therefore, when I begin to pray and ask and ask for the needs in which I have, knowing that my God shall supply all of my needs. I wish it said God would supply all of my wants, but that's not what it says. Knowing that, knowing that if I seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, all these things shall be added unto me, the things of necessity to go through this life. It always changes my perspective when I put God in the proper perspective and focus of my prayer. But as Daniel said here in verse 4, notice with me, he said he made confession. He didn't wait for someone else to begin the repentive process. In fact, it's interesting that as we read these next 14 verses together, notice that Daniel uses the word we, including himself in the repentance. Though we know Daniel was right before God, he didn't approach God and said, Lord, they're all sinners, but your grace, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not a sinner like they are. I'm grateful, Lord, that you have kept me from this. He saw himself as part of his people, the Jewish people. He took personal responsibility and petitioned God accordingly. So often, we want to make the problem someone else's problem, don't we? I used to work for an individual that always used to say in the moment of crisis, he always used to say to me, he says, either you are part of the solution or you are part of the problem. Daniel saw that he, just being part of the nation of Israel that rebelled against God, he and his people were the problem. And he begins to repent. Notice what he says with me in verse 5. For we have sinned and committed iniquity. That word iniquity means that we've acted perversely. We've acted crookedly. That corruption has overwhelmed our society. For we have sinned, we've missed the mark, we haven't kept the covenant agreement that you made with us, God. 
And as a result, we acted perversely and crookedly. For we have done wickedly. That word wickedly means that they committed crimes against one another. That they violated the, the relationship and the unity and community that was supposed to be found in the nation of Israel with God at the center. But they acted ruthlessly and criminally with one another. And we have rebelled. We specifically, purposely walked away from you. We walked away from your invitation to return. We walked away from your word. We walked away from your statutes. We walked away from the law. This is what Daniel is encompassing in all of these words. Gives you a picture of what it was like when Jeremiah went to the people pleading with them to repent and the various other prophets alike. Daniel said, no, it's our fault. Even by departing from your precepts and your judgments, all found in the Word of God. Neither have we heeded your servant, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes and our fathers and all the people of the land. We've all sinned. Every demographic that the nation of Israel contained. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shame of face. This is our problem, he's saying. God, you haven't wronged us. We have sinned against you. You have acted righteously even in our judgment through the hand of the Babylonians. You have brought us in according to your word. And you have corrected us. The faithfulness of God to his promises don't only include the promises of blessing, but also the, the promises of chastisement. See, God loves us too much to leave us the way He found us. And so if we begin to stray off, God will correct us, and He does so because He loves us, as He did the Jewish people. Because He didn't want them to continue in their sin, in the idolatry specifically that just devastated the nation. So He brought about correction through the Babylonians, as He said He would. One of the pitfalls that parents often fall into is after a child has disobeyed in some way, the parent says, okay, you're grounded for one week. And then, often because the parents don't want to fight the battle, the kid is let loose after two hours of that grounding. And after a while, the kid begins... <laughs> After a while, the kid begins to realize that even though mom and dad say I might be grounded for the next two years, it'll probably be only the next two hours. And they'll no longer take the discipline seriously, will they? And so God, in His righteousness, knew that if He was going to be faithful to His Word, He needed to be faithful not only to the blessings, but the cursings in which He said would come upon His people. And that is what has occurred. 
In verse 7, as we continue, as it is this day to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he has set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed as so not to obey your voice. And therefore, curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 29, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. Over the last two years, I've heard many Christians talk about revival and the need for revival. I don't think I have to work very hard to say that our nation is crumbling, isn't it? Morally. We continue to turn away from God, push Him out of every aspect of our public existence, trying even to push Him out of the consciousness of man. And yet God continues to work as He has always worked. But if we are going to bring about revival in America, it must start with us. We need to get alone with God and pray that prayer that David prayed, asking God to seek his, search his heart to see if there be any wicked way within him. When was the last time you took a moment to just get alone with the Lord and to find out if there was anything in your life that is objectionable to him and repented of those things? When was the last time you took the Word of God and as you read the Word of God, instead of applying it to others that you may know? You know, we often do that, don't we? We're reading the Word of God. Oh, oh, this passage, I need to text to this person immediately. They need to know about it right now and repent. And God's like, I'm talking to you. You, yes, you. I've actually seen over the years in services like this where a husband and wife will hear something and then they'll elbow their spouse. <laughs> He's talking right to you, honey. Yeah. But God always begins with us. He always begins with us. And as a result, it should be us who is sensitive to the Spirit's leading of conviction. Asking the Word of God to penetrate our hearts to see if there be any wicked way. And then willingly confessing that, that sin to God. That nothing may inhibit the incredible communion, fellowship, relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. Sin is serious. We often have a tendency to dismiss it. To lessen it. But any time we choose to do that, or to justify our sin, or try to explain it away. Just remember what God had to endure 
to cleanse us from that sin. Remember the, the sacrifice that Jesus Christ had made and the brutality that He subjected Himself to allow our sins to be washed away. Sin is serious before God, and unfortunately so often we as Christians, especially here in America, don't seem to take that sin very seriously and often try to justify it and dismiss it rather than repenting of it. But Daniel, he saw very quickly that it was the nation of Israel's issue and not his. Verse 11, yes, all of Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his word, which he has spoken against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven, such as never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. It's interesting to me that if you read Psalm 137, The children of Israel were more concerned at this period of time with God judging Babylon for what Babylon had done rather than repenting for those things that they had done in offense to God. And that is so typical of us, isn't it? We want to always blame someone else for the reason that we are in the circumstances that we often find ourselves. But often, we find that it is our disobedience that has led us to where we find ourselves. Not always, but often. And yet, we won't take responsibility for that. But Daniel did. Daniel saw that it was completely the nation of Israel that had sinned and rebelled against God. And now had warranted the the, uh, judgment and chastisement that they had now received. But the people in the moment of difficulty, they were praying for the judgment of Babylon. God, how could you ever allow this to happen to us? Completely out of focus. Unwilling to address their own issues before God. And looking to find guilt in another. In verse 14, therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind. And brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which He does, though we have not obeyed His voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray. Let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. 
We have to remember that God has us here for the purpose of being witnesses unto a lost world. A light in the darkness. And if we walk in hypocrisy, if we walk contrary to the Christian character outlined for us in the Scripture, why then should we ever think that the world is going to take God seriously? I remember in the Old Testament when David sinned and the prophet Nathan was sent to him. And Nathan began to explain to the king through this illustration, this illustration containing someone stealing a sheep of another. David got infuriated by what he heard. Oh, where is that person? You know, we've got to deal with him. That person is you, David. And then Nathan went on to say something very profound. You have given God's enemies reason to blaspheme God. We have to take our witness seriously, now more than ever. The world is looking for answers. We continuously are being shown that in the world, the most significant questions that humans have will never be answered through the wisdom of man. As institution after institution in our society continue to fail, working through lies and deceit, through greed and covetousness, people are becoming very concerned. They're becoming very fearful, very anxious, very worried. And yet we as Christians know that this was all going to happen before it happened. In the sense that we knew that God was one day going to return and he gave us ample evidence of what the days will be like before that return for his people. I got very concerned in 2020 when a number of individuals flocked to the bastion of truth called YouTube. And it seemed like weekly someone would come in and they would ask, oh, have you heard this prophet on YouTube? And they had these dreams. And they somewhat got frustrated with me when I didn't take them very seriously. Often they had to do with the election and President Trump. Often they had to do with the pandemic. I watched a couple of these. And it was interesting that these individuals who had these visions and prophecies never wanted to be responsible for them. I don't call myself a prophet, but here's the prophecy. <laughs> okay. How, how does that work? And so I began to tell people who came to me, and I was concerned because it seemed like they were spending more time in YouTube than in the Word. Because everybody was looking for specific revelation to what events were going to transpire next. I said, you don't have to look any further than the book. Right here. Right here. We got it in all different colors. You know, picture Bible, scratch and sniff. You know, we got it right here. You don't have to go to YouTube to find these things. And then they asked, well, how do we know if these things are true or not? I said, well, if they come to pass. And you know what? None of them did. I then said, well, according to the Bible, then they should personally be stoned. And I'm not talking about the legalized marijuana here in Illinois. <laughs> but the point I'm making is that people flocked to these things. 
these pastors who want a moment of fame or glory or attention, bragging about the number of hits on their YouTube channel, or how many individuals watched their video. And it was heartbreaking to me because it seemed like so many were so concerned. Oh, and they're forwarding them to each and every one of them and emailing them and texting each other and so forth. And when they didn't come to pass, people were then wondering why. The Bible is all that we need. And God has revealed to us what is going to happen before it happens. Be very careful. Weigh everything that you read or see or hear against the Word of God. Everything. The reason I bring this up is that because the prophecies in Daniel were so accurate that scholars for millennia, 2,000 years, believed that the book of Daniel was not written in B.C. but A.D., more along the lines of 248 A.D., because there's no way his prophecies could ever be that accurate unless they were written after the fact in hindsight. But no, God clearly showed us, Jesus told us, that Daniel prophesied these things. And when God prophesies, it's always 100% accurate and it will come to pass. Always. In Psalm 81, 11 through 16, God pleaded with his people. He said, but my people who do not heed my voice and Israel would have none of me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to walk in their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, he said, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries. The haters of the Lord would pretend submission to him, but their fate would be endured forever. He would have fed them also with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock. I would have satisfied you. God pleading with his people. And Daniel took that opportunity, to, as Ezekiel would say, to stand in the gap and to petition on behalf of God's people. And God heard his prayer. Verse 15. Verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because of our sin, And for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplication. And for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear to hear. Open your eyes and see our desolation and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplication before you because of our righteous deeds. Not because of us, God, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. And do not delay for your own sake, my God. Your city and your people are called. 
by your name. What an incredible prayer of Daniel. Extraordinary. Next week, we are going to find that God is going to answer Daniel in such a profound way. God is going to share with Daniel so much more than Daniel actually asked. And in it all, we are going to be encouraged by the revelation and the reveal that the angels bring to Daniel and offer in receipt of this prayer. This morning, I ask the question to all of you. As we have gone through these last two years together, as we have seen the things happen around us that we have seen happen, have you ever once been moved to get before the Lord and ask the Lord, Lord, forgive us? Lord, forgive us of our complacency, our apathy, our carnality. Forgive us for uh, taking the freedoms that we took for such granted and not using them for your glory, for the furtherance of your kingdom. Have we become comfortable in our Christianity? I get concerned when Christians are obsessed with the idea of returning to normal. I ask the question, does that normal include complacency, apathy, carnality? Because I don't want to return there. Do you really want to return there? I think now more than ever, we should have been shown how blessed we are actually here and now. And we should be looking to take the gospel to every single person that will listen. Now more than ever, people are asking questions. I can tell you that I can't escape a conversation within a half hour because once people find out I'm a pastor, they have all kinds of questions about God. And it's incredible. Just last week, after Sunday service, uh, one of our members came up to me and said that she was just absolutely floored and blessed because a young lady who has been her client for many, many, many years, very liberal in her worldview, really didn't believe that she had any need for God whatsoever, announced out of the blue that she had now begun to feel led to read her Bible. Very interesting. And I think people now are asking questions more than ever, and we have the answers. We need to be open, we need to be approachable, but most importantly, we need to be right before God. We need to ask the Lord, as Daniel did, and be honest with ourselves, saying, Lord, are there things in my life that are... uh, not pleasing to you that I need to deal with. Thoughts, attitudes, bitterness, critical heart, anger, unforgiveness. What is it, God? That God may move in and through our life as He desires to move. There are three things I'd like to leave you with this morning, if I may. Number one, for our lesson today, it starts with us. If we want to see revival move through the America, then it must start with us, and I mean individually with us. Getting right with God. 1 John 1.9, we have the promise that we may pray that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins 
and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Number two, we need to begin to pray the promises of God. What do I mean by that? As we discover discover the promises of God through God's word, we must begin then to pray upon those promises as Daniel did. God, you said 70 years and I believe you. Forgive us. You asked us to pray and to seek you at this time and that you would lead us back to our land. There are many promises throughout the New Testament that we as believers simply need to ask God to help us believe, right? Learning to pray the promises of God. Lastly, we need to know the signs of the times. I don't believe we can be complacent any longer, apathetic or carnal any longer. Why? Because I believe that the Lord's return is imminent. And as a result, John says that he who walks in this hope cleanses himself, walks in holiness before God, knowing that God could come back at any time. There were over 600 prophecies concerning the first coming of Messiah. The Pharisees missed them all. There were over 300 concerning his second. I'm sorry, did I flip that around? 300 for his first, 600 concerning his second. Jesus said this, In closing, in Matthew 16, uh, verses 2 and 3, He answered and said to them, Now when it is evening, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, because the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. Meaning you missed the 600 prophecies that would identify me as Messiah. I'm sorry, 300. (laughs) I keep doing that lately, you know. Thank you for your grace. I just feel all warm right now. The 600 prophecies of his first coming, I did it again. Remember, forgive 70 times 7. No. Uh, Anyways, the 300 prophecies concerning his first, the 600 concerning his second. Finally got it, a third try. We have to understand, the Bible has been saying for 2,000 years that our Lord is going to return. And we need to be about our Father's business. We need to make Him the preeminence in our life. We need to allow Christ to reign and to rule that we may glorify Him. And when we die, hopefully hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord.